I'm John DiLiberto, and you're hearing the Echoes podcast from PRX. Today, I bring you music from other worlds. It's not Sun Ra or Funkadelic. It's a singer-songwriter named Maria Stark and electronic icon Klaus Schulze. Maya Stark made one of the most beautiful albums of 2020 called Sapphire. She's an incredible singer who writes songs inspired by mysticism, religion, science fiction, and altered states of consciousness with a sonic design that might remind you of Lorena McKenna. Then we hear from the seventh icon of Echoes, electronic legend Klaus Schulze. His music is deep in my soul with its sequencer-driven Escher-like spacescapes. I've got an extended profile of this pioneering artist. Before we get to that, I want to tell you about Time Being. They are an electronic duo creating deep and dark ambient music. Their latest album is An Ocean of Time, and it lives up to its title as the duo contemplate time, eternity, and capturing the presence of the current moment in slow-moving soundscapes. Ocean of Time by Time Being is available from Amazon, iTunes, Bandcamp, and other retailers. And now, Maya Stark. New Age artists are really good at making instrumental recordings, but one thing they've been really bad at is making New Age pop. Singer Maria Stark breaks that syndrome with her latest album, Sapphire, but she doesn't call it New Age. I wanted to make a cinematic, mystical folk album that's like mystical folk pop. I like mystical folk more than New Age for some reason. There's more room to also have the dark side come and hang out. I'm not sure I'd call Sapphire dark, but it is deep, sonically rich, and lyrically complex. I have pulled the sword from stone and it was heavy, heavy. I've got floats from hollow bones and now I'm ready, ready to mourn the death of stars. Watch them go out with a baying and all sing every song that was shown. Meyer Stark is speaking to me on Zoom. She has long, luxurious brown hair and deep oceanic blue eyes. She's dressed down a bit from her fantasy-inspired press and album photos. She lives in Northern California, but right now she's in Ashland, Oregon, where she says she's creating her future. Working with the Meet Your Magic women in a deep dive immersion around Maria Stark brand for next year, yeah. Full on magical cauldron. 
<laughs> the Maya Stark brand, is that how you think of yourself? No, we're actually, we're exploring the totality of all of the things I would like to do, music and art being one of them, education, the education platform being one of them, and some other kinds of things and how they all can work together. And yeah, we're building a whole expression. <laughs> it's kind of, it's a brand, but it's hard to define. I'm, we're, that's why I'm here. We're trying to define it so that we can move forward. <laughs> she embraces fantasy imagery and new age mysticism to the fullest. One of her influences is Lorena McKennett. Not necessarily for McKennett's Celtic and Eastern influenced music, but for the mythical imagery that she employs. Lorena McKennett is one of these characters in my life. Like, I feel she's holding this archetypal pillar of the elven celtic goddess which i feel connected to that realm of music kind of in my the lineage of my soul and there's just some part of me that's always hanging out in the arthurian legend game of thrones kind of mythic reality and and she is embodies that so beautifully unlike anyone else i've come across Maria Stark hasn't had a typical career. She's never been a conventional singer-songwriter. She studied music therapy and has employed that in many ways. Among them is something called womb healing. Womb healing, it's a body of work that is connected to understanding that the womb is an area that has been often neglected in our society in terms of understanding and, and reverence of the preciousness of this portal with which all of life comes through. We've, we've all entered through this womb portal and there's a lot of beautiful mysteries about it. All of this complex and tangled information that when we direct attention and healing energy to unpacking some of the stories, profound transformations can happen with women. They can let go of things that had been inhibiting them from being creative or feeling, you know, confident and being in their power. This is from the album Remembrance by Scarlet Crow. That's a duo of Maya Stark and Mama Crow. But Sapphire is something different. It embraces music elements from across her youth to the present. It's coming on Christmas. They're cutting down trees. They're putting up reindeer and singing songs of joy and peace. Oh, I wish I had a river. I could skate away on. She grew up on her parents' music from Joni Mitchell to classical, then came the usual heartthrob, so someone in their tweens in the mid-1990s with Mariah Carey and Boys to Men. Then a 180 to punk rock 
jam bands, and Radiohead. By college, she had landed on singer-songwriters like Dara Williams, Fiona Apple, and Alanis Morissette. One of my boyfriends was really into Alanis Morissette, like all of her later albums, not just her first album. And, and so that music came in and I was blown away by these really emotionally intelligent describers of these vignettes of their experiences and relationships and, and relationship to the complexity of society. And, and that while I was studying music therapy and diving into learning about how song is an expression of consciousness and we can kind of like explore soul and the nature of ourselves through the mirror of art and I was listening to these women doing that. You can hear that lyric approach on her 2011 debut album, a live recording called A Fork in the Road. Another influence on her music was LSD. She refers to hallucinatory drugs as entheogens. Yeah, entheogens, the God-seeing chemical. Like it's the agents or catalysts for activating that part of us that knows this self as other is divine. It's pretty amazing. I love the study of entheogens, though I don't participate in them at this stage of my life. I, I did as a young person in expanding consciousness and exploring and it. And but musically, I am fascinated by the realms that can be discovered that I don't think I could hear before having experienced some of those mind-bending moments where it's like, oh, suddenly it seems like we can hear a whole frequency range that's beyond what my normal, typical, functioning brain wavelength is even capable of hearing. That's a sound you can hear on Maria Stark's Sapphire. Joshua Pemmon from the project Akara co-produced the album. And one of the things that Maria and I talked about with this album when she came to me to produce it, she said, you know, we really want to make something that's kind of quote-unquote theta-inducing. The overarching vibe here was one of wanting to create music that one can drop into and experience as, as that kind of drop. Something that like lifts us forward that we can be within rather than something that sort of moves us in a shocking way. Stark layers a lot of metaphor in her songs, drawing from Christian theology, science fiction, New Age mysticism, and fantasy. Joshua Penman says it's always a web of interrelationships. 
we'd sit down and I'd be like, okay, tell me about the song. And she would then give me 45 minutes of extended mythos and images and stones and aromatherapy. Take a song like Stargazer, which uses the Aurora Borealis as a metaphor for both love and ancient lovers who came to Earth. There's the story of the beloveds who make the covenant to come to Earth to remember their love song. And now we're like experiencing like, ooh, how can I hear the song of my ancient beloved through all lifetimes, through the experience of awe and wonder of something so magnificent as the Northern Lights. So how we did that was like, I ordered like black spruce Northern Lights essential oil so we could smell oh this is this is black spruce that might smell like the northern lights and we got a bunch of pictures of the northern lights that were the screensavers for months and and we're just like what is it about this thing we spent time trying to build ourselves like build a world like mind map it around us and just describe like it's exercising of describing the undescribable Stark Sapphire was recorded before the pandemic struck and while that altered her plans, it also highlighted the whole point of the album. The weirdest part about a pandemic for me is like having Sapphire kind of in the can and like ready to share and we're like yeah we're gonna go on a tour and we're gonna have a big theater show and to like just pivot completely away from that reality and still decide that creativity is important, that creativity matters now, and that creativity has, and like what we did is gonna bring value to people's lives now. Sapphire has definitely brought value to my life in these times when a lot of people live in altered realities. Maya Stark's reality, however, just happens to be more magical and peaceful than many. I can feel it I will have a link for Maria Stark Sapphire in the posting for this podcast. I really think that album should have been in the Echo's Top 30 for 2020. It was a real oversight on our part. And now, one of the musicians who is the reason we created Echo's, Klaus Schulze, the seventh icon of Echo's. 
before techno, electronica, synth-pop, and ambient music, before synthesizers were as commonplace as electric guitars, Klaus Schulze was creating a music unlike any that had been heard before. Over the course of five decades, he has made over 50 proper albums, solo recordings with evocative titles like Timewind, Mirage, Moondawn, and Entrance. There's also been several collaborations and a trove of multi-CD boxes. These albums have influenced multiple generations, beginning with artists like Steve Roach, Ian Body, and Mark Shreve in the early 80s, then Moby in the late 80s, and TV composers in the new millennium like Brian Reitzel of Mr. Robot and Kyle Dixon and Michael Stein of Stranger Things. Even Lisa Gerrard of Dead Can Dance has been influenced and she collaborated with Schulze on a couple of albums. Today we celebrate Klaus Schulze, the seventh icon of Echoes. We've done a lot of features on Schulze and today I'm going to combine them into a sweeping exploration of his work. Kimberly Haas heads into space with Klaus Schulze. Klaus Schulze's music was mixed in a crucible of technology, science fiction, and the tail end of 60s psychedelia. West Berlin was a center for new electronic music. Tangerine Dream, Ashra Temple, Popo Vu, and Agitation Free with Michael Hernick all emerged in the early 70s. Schulze was a drummer when he joined Tangerine Dream and played on their first album, Electronic Meditation. However, it was anything but meditative. But the thing with Tangerine Dream in the beginning, it was the same step, but it, because it was just like a punch, like around everything is away, we have to do something new, very aggressive, you know, like punk. It was, from my point of view, uh, earliest and uh, electronic meditation are the punk electronic albums, you know. Tangerine Dream founder Edgar Froza remembers that they were trying to break away from the influence of American and British rock and roll to find their own sound. We had uh, over there in Germany, we had no roots in rock and roll. We could not compare our talent in rock and roll in any way with am American musicians, even not with English musicians. So what we had to do is to step away from that, try to move through the back door into a sort of um, different aspects of explaining ourselves through music, you know. And so we uh, realized, okay, what, what we've got, what's our heritage in music? That's classical music and a growing part of technologies. And we haven't done anything else than combining new technologies with the roots of classical music. That's what we did. The Germans became known as the Cosmic Couriers after Ulrich Kaiser, the owner of Orr Records, recorded a series of psychedelic jam session albums like Galactic Supermarket and Cosmic Jokers. Uh, it was a very strange thing, actually, because the uh, producer at this time, uh, Ulrich Kaiser, um, he had a special idea, he had a big cosmic thinking, you know, and he um, was uh, taking a lot of trips at this time, and, uh, and he said it's not enough that we are just doing our albums, 
We have to be a cosmic family, you know? A cosmic courier who brings a, uh, the message all over the world and to the universe and all that stuff. And uh, so he rented a studio, which uh, he rented just I think for four weeks constantly. And um, we all went in there and uh, we were obliged to take a trip. It was the entrance. In the entrance there was a pot with trips filled up. So everybody uh, took his trip and then there was all people together, part of Tangent Dream, Purple Vu, Ashra, myself. And uh, it, it was signs of the time what we had at this time, you know. But uh, you can't take it serious musically, you know. It's, but uh, as a joke, I accept it, you know. <laughs> Schulze soon switched to keyboards, and in 1972 and 73, he made the experimental drone albums Ehrlicht and Cyborg. But his first major statement was the time wind in 1975. It was a sweeping work with only two 30-minute compositions. Its expansive themes and rhythmic pulse were made possible by the use of sequencers, devices that generated ostinato patterns with unerring perfection. Time wind uh, was, from my point of view, the most classical electronic album I did, you know. It was the first time that you could have a, a strong rhythm without having a band or with have, having a... I mean, uh, no bass player could play these things for that. He would went crazy after five minutes at least, you know. And that was new also, you know. And, uh, and it got its own power, this kind of monotonous, hypnotic and also psychedelic feeling. Schultz's watershed recording that defined his style for years to come. Many musicians have become more popular borrowing his techniques and imagery, but Schultze remains one of the most distinctive voices in electronic music. To his fans, he's the Mozart of synthesizers, and despite his rock background, Klaus Schultze still likens his music to classical form and structure. I just did the music I liked, you know, and um the reception and the, the way of listening to it is somehow classical, but the composition system is totally not classic. Uh, but uh, let's say the surface looks uh, classic because long pieces, it has uh, a very soft, not aggressive sound, like uh, there's no real heavy metal guitar in it or whatever. And that's similar to classical music, you know. But I was never really aware that I'm creating this kind of uh, classical feeling because for me it was just a nice music which I liked. Klaus Schulze's music exists outside of traditional boundaries. 
His compositions have a classical sense of time, exploring moods and feelings that have become associated with the new age. What I spoke to people that when they come home from work or they're really stressed or they don't feel well, they sit down or lie down and just listen to the music and then start dreaming, you know, have their own fantasy going, you know. Schultz's atmospheric compositions have affected a generation of musicians. The cover of his 1975 album, Time Wind, occupied a prominent spot in the Los Angeles recording studio of synthesist Steve Roach. The first album I heard was Time Wind. And the first time I heard it, it was just a, the uh, classic mystical experience that uh, is sometimes related to you know, a drug experience or some kind of near-death experience or some kind of extreme uh, shift of the paradigm, so to speak. And that album really just happened to be at the right time. And I happened to be at the right time, the right place, heard it. Things connected very, very deeply. The popular Japanese New Age musician Kitaro was introduced to Schulze when he produced an album by Kitaro's early group, the Far East Family Band. Speaking through his translator, Kitaro recalls Schultz's impact. More than actual uh, the specifics of uh, what Klaus did with the instrument, it was it was his whole approach to the instrument. Uh, Klaus's personality is almost uh, uh, has a childlike quality, and that that uh, led to a very fresh approach to the use of the synthesizer. It was. It was, it was using the, the instruments and other equipment in the studio in ways which were uh, totally unconventional. For example, he would take tracks that he had built up to a certain point, play them through a Leslie cabinet, mic the cabinet, and remix that into the, into the overall thing. You know, things like that uh, uh, were, were quite unique, he felt, and uh, influential. He was really funny. He played his mellotron, and uh, he didn't know anything about synthesizer, you know. He had a small cork synthesizer, and uh, so I explained a lot to him, you know, and we have a lot of talkings, you know. Schulze did more than turn Kitaro and others onto synthesizers. He plugged into a spirit of musical adventure and search that has suffused the best of New Age and space music. Again, Steve Roach. Klaus, for me, certainly was the icon of, of the synth hero. I mean, the solo artist, you know, with the whole sort of image he projected in when I was younger. And I know that he projected to so many um, of the synthesis who were, who were affected by his music and by him as an individual in the way that he would present himself on the covers. And the whole aura about him was very, um, very attractive to someone who was looking, you know, for a new direction. And I mean, Klaus, just, he represented a, a, a real lot in that way, I think. You know, it's a real mysterious quality to it.
These musicians were attracted to Schultz's sense of time and space, and the hypnotic quality of his repeating sequencer patterns. He likes long compositions, and looks upon them as if he were building a piece atom by atom. I think my kind of music was always a music which uh, you start to listen to, and then you, you have a feeling of being relaxed or seeing a mental movie, and uh, this, I think this demands a certain uh, amount of uh, minutes to come in, then in, to enjoy it, and uh, finally to go out uh, it. And if you have too many breaks or what they say, segments, uh, you, you cannot concentrate on one thing what you like, you would like to concentrate on, you know, because if the mood is changing like a ping pong, you know, I think the feeling is very near also to classical feeling. Klaus Schulze's music has always been invested with a science fiction aura. His early cover art used drawings by Oris Amann, depicting aliens with streamlined limbs, living in Dali-esque landscapes. Deeply influenced by the late science fiction author Frank Herbert and his epic novel Dune, Schulze tried to recreate the airy spaces and mystic philosophies of that novel through sound. He had been commissioned to write the score for the Dune film, before it changed directors. But even before that, he'd recorded his own Dune album and a tribute to Frank Herbert on the album 10. Dune was, I think, the most impressive work for me, which I ever read on science fiction, you know. And there's yeah, some other bits, Stanislav Lem or Arthur C. Clarke, uh, but this was, I think, the most impressive. It's like a Bible, in fact, if you want to see it like that, you know. And um, so I just want to e express some of, uh, of my feelings, which has nothing to do with the meaning of that, uh, of the Dune work from Frank Herbert, but uh, it deals with my understanding, my reception of this book. Like the characters in Dune, who became addicted to the opiatic spice of the planet Arrakis, Schulze also found his own addictions. In 1983, the pressures of traveling on the road and running a record company combined in a cocaine and alcohol problem. You know, I took everything, tablets, pills, uh, cokes, and whiskey, and every, whatever you had there. But uh, there was a definite rotten time, you know. And the, the problem was that you woke up in the morning and um, you were really to the tablets. You were sleepy, then you put the first line, you were really on, and then uh, you drink something, and then the concert came, you took another line, not one, some more. And uh, it was with as the same, we both did that, you know. And uh, then you were really on and you, you want to sleep, you know, so you took a pill to sleep, you know, the stupid circle, you know. The effects on his music were as deadening as his earlier use of hallucinogens was liberating. The alcohol put me in a situation that I became more rocky, you know, more rock and roll heavy. 
I think, for example, heavy metal music, you know, is only pe for people who must be alcoholics, you know, because then it works. If you're really drunken and you listen to heavy metal, it's nice, you know. And it's because it's just a standard, because the rest of the, of the head just closes, you know, and just the one and the, the screaming that comes through your brain, the rest is just filtered out by the alcohol, you know. And that's probably affected also my music. They started to do heavy drum things, you know. Schulze has since spent time in a clinic and claims to have overcome his cocaine problem. Even at his lowest ebb, there was a spirit in Schulze's music that could not be suppressed. Michael Shreve, who played drums with Santana and made several records with Schulze, says that Schulze shares an enthusiasm for music that is matched by few people and compares him in spirit to John Coltrane and Miles Davis. For one thing, he gets something going, he gets the sequences going, and he starts jamming on top of it. So in that sense, yeah. And he's very free, you know, and childlike in the actual performance. Laughs, calls the, you know, stereo sequences, my babies, you know, I mean, really, it's very close to them. Everything's very personal with the instruments even, not just the music, you know. I mean, everybody knows, you know, that Klaus loves his music. But that's no different than any, uh, any other great musician that I know. Klaus Schulze feels himself moving back into a more contemplative period. I think I will become more, in the real sense, of more classical. The music will be more, more quiet, more uh, calm, you know, more lovely actually in the moment, you know. And um, experimental, there will be also uh, very harmonic, soft pieces, and I think very going more again back to sounds, just to create sounds environments, you know. For Echoes, I'm Kimberly Haas. This wasn't enough for you. I've got a tribute to Klaus Schulze that I wrote. It's up on the Echoes website, echoes.org. It includes a list of five essential Klaus Schulze albums. Echoes online subscribers can still access our two-hour Klaus Schulze special on demand. You can find out all about Echoes online at echoes.org. Next week on the Echoes podcast, I talk with the ambient chamber group Digitonal, and we celebrate the eighth icon of Echoes, Steve Reich. I'm John DiLiberto. This has been the Echoes podcast from PRX. See you next week, tonight on the radio, somewhere in the country, or online right now, or whenever you want. <laughs>